Where is the Biden administration headed and why? In his address to a joint session of Congress last Thursday, Biden appears to have signaled a significant turn toward a program aimed at providing substantial benefits to working people. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's May 4th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, this is a huge story, this speech that happened last week with Biden. But, you know, more importantly is what he actually outlined in the speech and what calculations he and his administration are making. What do you think? Yes, and we have some audio clips from Biden's speech. We want to be able to play them so people can hear them for themselves. We also have a major article that Walter has published on Liberation News, which I thought was helpful because it was very filled with facts and also filled with political orientation about how to deal with the Biden administration and Biden's current orientation. One of the things Nicole, is that, you know, as a socialist program, the four of us who are doing this show, we're providing a socialist perspective, meaning we're critiquing capitalism. But we're not simply, you know, critics on the sidelines making, you know, interesting points about what's wrong with capitalism. We're also people who are engaged as organizers, as activists, as movement builders, people who believe in change, are working for change, and also believe that change really comes from the mobilization of masses of people. It's not small groups that create change. It's the people themselves, once they become active in politics, who make the difference. And that's always been true. And that's another important part of who we are and what we're trying to do. I say that because when you think about this program, the Biden administration's offering here, it would be easy to simply say, look, this is a capitalist ruling class program that is too meager, too inadequate, doesn't do the job, is a reflection of all of the failings of capitalism because of what it does not do. And that would be right. You could also make the argument that why does Biden feel compelled when he makes the argument that the unemployed should have jobs and those who don't have access to affordable health care should have it, that he frames it as part of competition with the People's Republic of China, a government led by a communist party. Why is it a compelling need for any capitalist politician in the United States to frame it like that rather than, hey, this is what the people of this country, the people I presumably represent, need, and we, 
the capitalist system have adequate resources to meet them? Why is it that it has to always be framed as a competition? These are really things that just jump out at you. But I would say this, we are in a changed political environment. The ruling class in the United States has been impacted by growing progressive political social movements over the last decade. There was the Occupy movement. There is the Black Lives Matter movement. There are the teachers' strikes. There were the Bernie Sanders campaigns that helped popularize socialism in 2016 and 2020. There was a phenomenal growth in socialist organizations recruiting new members and building a larger milieu in the last year or two. And at the same time, the capitalist system in the United States has shown itself to be a miserable failure when it came to COVID. 60 million people lost their jobs. One out of every four deaths in the world were in the United States. Meanwhile, a communist-led government, the People's Republic of China, a much poorer country than the United States, managed COVID. People didn't become unemployed in massive numbers. And in many ways, China seems to be succeeding where the United States is failing. So what's happened, and this is not the first time in American history where the combination of domestic social upheaval and the growth of the left at the same time where the international environment changes like it did in the 1930s when the world capitalist countries, including the United States, were suffering massive unemployment. 25% of all workers in the U.S. were without employment in 1931, 32, 33. And the Soviet Union, using a socialist planned economy as the model, had no recession at all. The only country in the world that didn't have a depression. So the combination of mass pressure from workers in the United States demanding that which they did not have, unemployment benefits, social security, the right to form unions, and at the same time, the apparent success of a communist-led government in the Soviet Union in comparison to the United States, that created a political environment that led to profound social change, like the New Deal, like social security and unemployment insurance, et cetera, et cetera. We're in a moment where, again, it's easy to tell the truth about what's wrong with the capitalist system and why Biden's program is simply just not enough. Or we could take another approach, which is we are in a new political moment and real far-reaching, much-needed reforms can be achieved if the people who are progressive don't stand on the sidelines critiquing the system, but actively take advantage of the moment to demand that these far-reaching reforms be implemented, that anyone who tries to obstruct them become the focus of political mobilization, and that as we fight for far-reaching reforms, and Walter, I want you to go through what some of the reforms are in this package, we don't say, oh, great, this means capitalism is good. This means the Democratic Party is wonderful. This means Joe Biden is a savior. No, it just means that the struggle of the people, the working class, can actually make a difference and under some circumstances, even absent a revolution, far-reaching reforms can be achieved. We're in that kind of political moment, and that's the important part of our orientation tactically, not as critics, but as organizers and activists. Walter, let's just talk about Biden's speech, and in particular, the two bills that he has introduced, and what's in them. I mean, it's pretty significant. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think that this is truly a substantial program that could make a, a difference in the lives of many, many, many millions of people. And I think for that reason, you know, what you're saying is completely correct. It would be wrong. It would be politically foolish of people who are socialists, who are fighting for a different type of society to just kind of turn our noses up at this and be like, oh, well, who cares? It's not a big deal because some of these things are truly a big deal. So there are two major legislative initiatives that Biden talked about in his address to a joint session of Congress, you know, essentially a State of the Union style address. The new thing that he rolled out is something called the American Families Plan. And so under this bill, under this proposal, there would be universal pre-K, so free universal pre-K, free community college education, it would make a tax credit permanent that would give working class parents a major, major check in some instances. So you would get a $3,600 tax credit for every child you have under the age of six and $3,000 for every child over the age of six. And so if you are somebody who's you know struggling, you make less than the taxable threshold, you would just get a check for that amount of money. I mean, that would be truly life-changing. There would be significant subsidies for childcare under the American Families Plan as well. And there would be also, for tens of millions of people for the very first time, if this bill passes, they would get guaranteed paid family and sick leave and medical leave. There was the piece of the infrastructure proposal that's already been rolled out publicly. That's the American Jobs Plan. And that would see hundreds of billions of dollars in excess of a trillion dollars invested in various infrastructure upgrades, be that you know transportation, in communications, airports, ports, that kind of thing. And one thing I thought was significant in Biden's speech is that he emphasized that 90% of the jobs that would be created under the American Jobs Plan would not require a college education. And that 75% of them would not require an associate's degree as well. So that sort of tells you what strata of society, what strata of the working class he's addressing this to. And, and it's the strata that's been having some of the most difficulties over the past years or decades. And there are other pieces of the speech too. I mean, those are the two big parts of it. I mean, the American Families Plan, front and center. But I think there are significant things that Biden said as well. For instance, he talked about passing the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which would be truly a historic expansion of the rights of workers to organize unions, making it much, much easier. He talked about the Paycheck Fairness Act that would aim to guarantee equal pay between women and men workers. He talked about the Federal Equality Act, which would prohibit discrimination against LGBTQ people. He talked about immigrant rights, you know, giving permanent protection to dreamers, giving permanent protection to recipients of TPS, that's temporary protected status, who are frequently in a very precarious situation. I mean, it was truly a pretty comprehensive program that Biden laid out. And I think for, you know, the reasons you said, we've got to have some kind of engagement with this that isn't 100% negative. Now, I think that that does not necessarily mean that we take, you know, a kumbaya attitude towards Biden. I think it can still be confrontational and oppositional at some points, especially on the issue of tactics. I mean, if Biden is serious about actually enacting the things that he talks about in this speech, certainly the filibuster has to go, right? That's the rule in the Senate that imposes a 60 vote as opposed to 51 vote requirement to pass almost anything. So none of this stuff in all likelihood is going to pass unless Biden is willing to get rid of the filibuster, which is what some people have been calling on him to do for months. 
or Walter. It's not just a matter of what happens in Congress. I mean, the point here is that if millions of people go into the streets, as happened in 1932 and 33, uh, demanding these things, if labor and the civil rights movement and the women's movement and the anti-war movement, if everyone is in the streets demanding these things, these things are clearly possible because Biden wouldn't have introduced them. And he's feeling the pressure of the movement and he's feeling the pressure of China's success. If it's just up to Congress, it won't pass. Just the same way the unemployment insurance and the Social Security Act of 1935 would not have passed if it wasn't for large organizations and movements in the streets. So, Walter, yeah, I think you're so right in terms of all the important provisions in the American Families Plan. But when we discussed this twofold infrastructure bill, I guess a few weeks ago, your analysis was that the human needs portion of it, you know, with all these benefits to families were put there to perhaps be chucked, you know, in a compromise with Republicans. So I wanted you to kind of talk about your change or shift in how you think Biden is considering these provisions for families. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when I first looked at this, I thought, okay, so the American Jobs Plan, that's the one that Biden actually wants to pass. And the American Families Plan with all the more progressive stuff, he'll just ditch that. And I think I was too pessimistic about, you know, the strength of those people's movements that Brian was talking about and how that's transformed the political landscape in the United States in a way that Biden simply has no choice but to build that into his calculations. And I also think that there's been a significant change or evolution of the circumstances in Washington for elite politics. You know, when Biden gave his inaugural address, it was basically about how much he wants to be friends with the Republicans, right? Like it was a back to normal, let's all get along, you know, if you're a part of the ruling class type of speech, you know, we can come together, have bipartisan cooperation, and, you know, unity will once again prevail at the heights of power in Washington. But essentially, there were like almost no Republican takers for that kind of offer, at least not initially. I mean, you'll remember um, the American Rescue Plan, right? So that's the formal name of the stimulus package that Biden passed. You know, he wanted a multi-trillion dollar bill, and then the Republicans came back with a counteroffer that was like one-fifth or one-quarter the size of what Biden wanted, right? So in other words, they were not seriously negotiating with him. And, you know, it's just been several roadblocks like that. So I think that that may also have been a factor in kind of the evolving orientation in the Biden administration. There's one other thing that I think might be at play here. There's a debate, I think, that's been raging inside the Biden administration between the traditional centrist Wall Street Democratic Party establishment and those who are more progressive and those who have been more impacted by the progressive movements of the past decade, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, you know, all the other ones that we mentioned earlier. I'm looking at the Washington Post editorial. Listen to this. This shows that there has to be a debate. And this is significant because divisions within ruling class parties give a space for organizing for the left. But here's the editorial opinion. This is the Washington Post lead editorial. A patent-free, quote, people's vaccine is not the best way to help poor countries. Get that. Here's from the Post editorial. Now, they're obviously trying to stop something that is under consideration. And Biden spoke earlier today about the issue of COVID. 
The worsening global pandemic with the virus surging not only in India, but also in Brazil, Turkey, Iran, Argentina, and elsewhere has stirred outrage over the lack of vaccines in the developing world. Rich countries are inoculating millions of people while poor countries wait in agony and anxiety. This has given fresh impetus to demands that patent protection be temporarily stripped from vaccines to deliver everyone a free, quote, people's vaccine, close quote. Then here's the Washington Post neocon, brutal, ugly capitalist editorial board. Quote, the goal is noble, but the demand is more slogan than solution. What the world needs are political leaders prepared to make hard emergency decisions to stop viral transmission, such as immediate lockdowns and renewed leadership from the United States and other rich nations to help accelerate global vaccine production and sharing, which saves lives later. And then it goes on about why allowing countries in the developing world to just go ahead and produce the vaccine and lift the patent is not a good idea. And then it says at the very end, that there's a debate raging inside the Biden administration over whether to do just that. I mean, this is one of those political moments, everybody, where a lot that seemed to be impossible to achieve before is now achievable. I would say, Nicole, when you think about what's changed the political climate more than anything, it was Occupy, yes, the Black Lives Matter movement in 2014, yes, the Sanders campaign. There was the nationwide uprising against racism this summer. And yes, it was against racism, but it was for social change. And 35 million people came out and showed the power of the people. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I think so many of us listen, especially to politicians like Biden, who, you know, when he started this speech on last Thursday, he made mention of how nice it was to be home in Congress, right? He is literally a creature of that building. He's been there for decades. So it's hard to listen to a speech like that and think, oh, any of this will happen. What a, you know, what a nice man. But to put a fine point on it, the point is he's not doing this for us. He's not doing this. The movements have done this. The only reason that he's up there saying any of these words that he championed, you know, $15 an hour of minimum wage that that ever came out of his mouth once he was in office was because of the movements that have pushed it that far. And the only reason I think that we're saying that this is an opportunity is not because of necessarily the way he framed certain issues or the way he phrased certain words, but because of the political climate that you're outlining right now, because of the movements and the 35 million people who are in the streets, so many of them for the very first time, who are clearly putting pressure on the Biden administration and are clearly have been putting pressure for the last year and for you know the last decade or so on progressives and have created a bigger progressive movement here in the United States. And that division that you're talking about right now within the Biden administration is the opportunity that we can be taking advantage of. And also think that the movements have built upon each other. So the movement for Black lives and the uprising against racism drew very close parallels to the anti-war movement and the call to defund the police evoked also a call to defund the Pentagon. And so people became really educated, I think, around money, where our resources are being used in this country. And so you hear even in corporate media, 
comments and commentary about how the Congress or Republicans or, you know, neocons like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema do not balk at the one trillion in military spending, you know, that is draining resources from things like infrastructure, right? And how even in the CARES Act, the first CARES Act that was passed, how there was able to be leverage up to $45 trillion in support for big banks and corporations. So, you know, the whole pandemic, which coincided with the uprising against racism, has really given people a new way of looking at resources and how we can't get universal health care, but they can still spend a trillion dollars at the Pentagon. And I also wanted to say that the debate isn't just within the Democratic Party. And what's also pushing this is people being able to see how the Republican response is so unified and so against these important improvements for people, important reforms that will benefit American families. So you even had something ridiculous this week, like Republican Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn come out and attack the free community college provision in this act, saying that, you know, Biden is trying to force you to go to college for two years, or they're trying to force your three-year-old into pre-K when it says nothing of the sort, you know, just like they were saying last week that Brian was trying to like force you to just have one hamburger a month, you know, for the people who eat hamburgers. I saw that too from Blackburn. She actually said the Biden administration by offering pre-K is forcing you to have other people raise your kids. I mean, it's that ludicrous. Yeah, just basically saying that the whole family's plan was anti-family and that it would reduce Americans' control over their own lives. So you have this type of rhetoric and it's showing that the Republicans are reduced to a cultural fight around these what they call cultural issues because they know that all of these benefits will greatly aid people in their own communities. So instead of supporting these benefits that will aid their own constituents, they're coming out and attacking from a cultural lens. It's just really showing the just ridiculousness and the just really horrific way that these corporate politicians are attacking things that would really benefit families. Nicole, you know, Esther's point is so important because, and you talk to someone in West Virginia, if these plans were adopted, if they become law, if, for instance, there's accessible childcare, if there's pre-K, if people who are working class and have children are getting a check every month, and the check could start as early as September, like $300 a month. When you think about places like West Virginia, which was a completely blue Democratic state up until the end of the 1990s, always voted Democrat, only once or twice voted for a Republican. And now it's a completely Republican state. And again, we're not pro-Democrat. The point is, West Virginia shifted political alliances, not because the people in West Virginia really changed in any way. What changed was the Democratic Party's orientation. And then the Republicans come back at the Democrats with this purely demagogic sort of cultural argument, as Esther is well putting it, when in fact, what these people need are the things that are in this plan. And if you wanted to actually, even from a narrow electoral point of view, make a difference in terms of recruiting Republican voters back to the Democratic Party, I mean, working class Republican voters, this would be the thing that would do it. I mean, anyway, you talk to someone in West Virginia about the plan. 
Yeah, I talked to Russell Morell. He's a trade worker in West Virginia. He's saying a lot of what you're saying and what Esther's saying. So I'll play a couple of clips from speaking with him. Especially for West Virginians, childcare is such a big issue here. Our minimum wage is only eight seventy-five an hour. So you make about sixteen five a year if you're working full time on that. Childcare in West Virginia comes out to be about seven thousand dollars a year, even to put a kid in like a care center. So thirty six hundred covers about half of that, which would be huge in getting West Virginians, you know, able to actually go to work. As for the jobs program, only about twenty percent of West Virginians have a bachelor's degree. So anything not requiring a college degree would be extremely helpful out here in West Virginia. I know I went to trade school myself. So to get people trained and educated, we're one of the uh, lowest educated states in America. So I think any of these policies, if they're followed through on, even that check for childcare could probably go a little bit further for us, would be a huge benefit to West Virginians. You hear his skepticism, of course, you know, like I was mentioning that I have when I listen to speeches from politicians. So I asked him a little bit more about that. And he expounded a little bit more about where that skepticism comes from, especially in West Virginia, where he grew up. We've seen Democrat presidents make big offers or, you know, have big plans for what's going to help us out here. And then we've, you know, we've seen the outcomes of them. I always think of when it was Hillary Clinton running against Trump, if you asked West Virginians on the street, they'd tell you, you're never going to get a West Virginian to vote for a Clinton. And that harkens back to the signing of NAFTA. We heard there over and over again, it's the economy, stupid, the health of the middle class, stuff like that. And then once he gets in there, you know, the big jobs we had here, you know, West Virginia always gets pegged with coal, but coal doesn't actually make up most of what our state does. And for a while, their manufacturing did. Well, with NAFTA, that went out of the state. And so West Virginians have been burned by the promises of Democrats before. And so getting them to trust that or getting any of us to feel like that's actually going to redound down to us as a benefit, there's a healthy skepticism there, I'd say. And just one more clip. You know, we talked a little bit more about the more recent politics of West Virginia and a little bit more about NAFTA. And we've talked about this on the show before, but a lot of people on the right who are so-called on the right or who are conservatives or who vote for Republicans, you know, sometimes have the same exact interests as we do. When you really talk to people here, a lot of what they tell you is it comes down to we don't trust people who are out to make money. We don't trust systems that are based on money. I mean, I have talked to people in my trade. What they talk about is they'd say capitalism has not been good for them, that it has actually hurt them. I mean, you know, that's a a thing you never think you hear out here from people waving American flags and talking about how great America is or make America great again. And yet there's room here for change because people know there's something wrong when everything is geared towards profit instead of taking care of, of people. And so, yeah, I do think there's hope here if we uh, can take advantage of a moment to talk to the, our working people around us and be real, not talk down to them, but be real about what we can do together. I'm so glad, Nicole, that you got a chance to interview Russell about this. And his points are really spot on. And again, this show, The Socialist Program, and those of us who are political organizers, the point isn't about telling the truth. That's the easy part of organizing. There are many different parts of the truth. The question at any moment is, what do you want to emphasize? What part of the, quote, truth 
is like the key link in the chain? What is it that you want to hold on to? What is it that can make a difference? Because that's what we're trying to do is to make a difference. And if we or the left stays on the internet, stays on Twitter, you know, makes constant hot takes about how bad this or that element of the capitalist system is, and we get favorable feedback from our friends on Twitter or on Facebook, and that's it, it doesn't do a thing to move the needle. Like what he's saying about how to reach into West Virginia, how to make the red states really red, because the working class that right now is voting even Republican, he says, is not happy about capitalism. But neither the Democrats or the Democratic Party leaders are able or have been able to pursue a policy or actually speak to those sections of the working class to build unity in the struggle for childcare, to build unity in the struggle for affordable housing, to build unity in the struggle against homelessness. These are things that impact the entire working class. We saw in the teacher strikes in West Virginia, which started the ball rolling and then spread to other mainly red states, that those organizers, there had to be real organizers. The teacher strikes don't just happen. They happen because teacher union organizers, teachers themselves and other education staff, they build a program of class unity around the things that people need, and then you act on them. And right now, the United States working class needs childcare. The U.S. working class needs more money. The U.S. working class needs stable employment and affordable housing. Anyway, this is one of those moments where we can fight. We should fight and not simply stay in the world of the internet, but actually be in the streets, in the communities, in our workplaces, presenting this kind of perspective. What you said reminded me of one of my favorite Lenin quotes. Lenin said this in 1918, politics begin where millions of men and women are, where there are not thousands, but millions, that is where serious politics begins. So I think that's the question we always have to be asking ourselves. How do we move millions, not just the thousands of people who may already agree with us, who comprehensively already agree with us on every little political and historical issue? How do we move millions of people to whom radical politics is completely new, but who have a direct material interest in seeing those politics come to fruition? Certainly, we won't move millions of people if our attitude towards people getting free childcare or being able to go to community college for free, or to finally get a job that can support their family. If our attitude towards people getting those things is who cares, it's not big enough, Biden isn't really your friend, it's all a trick, we're never going to move millions of people with that type of attitude. But if we say, yes, we can win these things, but only if we struggle, only if we fight in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods, then we can begin to move those millions of people. And we can make sure that those millions of people draw the correct political lessons from this struggle if it's victorious. Because the people who like to speak to the thousands, not the millions, the argument that they make all the time is that, well, if we spread illusions in the nature of the system, if we tell people that things can get better under capitalism, then we're giving people false hope and we're propping up this system. Well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, if people who do believe in a new system are active, energetic, the most active and energetic participants in this struggle, then we're in a position to help people draw the lesson after the fact, like, hey, we won that. It wasn't Joe Biden. It wasn't people in Congress. We were the ones who fundamentally won that. And so let's struggle more. And I think we saw that play out 
you know, exactly with the guilty verdict against Derek Chauvin, right? I mean, that was a huge victory of the people's movement. Everybody knows that if there wasn't a nationwide determined militant uprising, that that cop wouldn't have been sent to prison. But there was. And you know what? There's certainly no diminution of interest in the fight against racist police terror. I mean, to me, it seems like people are more energized to struggle against the racist cops than ever. And that was the result of, of a victory, not a defeat. I just wanted to add that, you know, for so many families and so many mothers really cannot afford to go back to work as long as schools are closed, you know, during the pandemic. And so you could think of this Biden's policy, this family's plan as working hand in hand with him trying to reopen public schools for in-person learning. And that's still not happening universally around the country right now. And there's actually been a drop in school enrollment. And I wanted to connect that to Biden's whole emphasis that this is an effort to help us compete with China, right? Mm. Because getting Americans back to work, getting the economy back to fuller speed is part of his effort to compete with China. And I think a lot of people like listening to his speech about this will say, well, I hope that you're not saying that it's important for me to be able to go to college just because you want to compete with China, right? That funds aren't being provided for me to get an education just so we can compete with China. That there is value in me being educated and to be able to contribute, to get work, to be able to support my family totally separate from whether you want to compete with China, right? It's important for me to be able to have quality childcare, totally separate from whether you want to compete with China. And so I think that people are hearing that. And, you know, that's certainly something that we can talk about in terms of what this whole family plan means. And so I just wanted to add that. You know, Nicole, you picked a few clips from Biden's speech, and some of them talk about what's in the program, and some of them talk about the framing of it, that this is this competition with China. I think it's worth it for our audience to actually hear, maybe they already heard Biden, but let us they're not long, but I think they're very instructive, and I want to play them and get our comments, our thoughts about them. Yes, I'll go ahead and play two audio clips from last week's speech. One of the defining images, at least from my perspective in this crisis, has been cars lined up, cars lined up for miles. And not, not people just barely able to start those cars, nice cars, lined up for miles, waiting for a box of food to be put in their trunk. I don't know about you, but I didn't ever think I'd see that in America. And all of this is through no fault of their own. No fault of their own. These people are in this position. And here's the second clip where Biden really does put all of this directly into context of competition with China. We're in competition with China and other countries to win the 21st century. We're at a great inflection point in history. We have to do more than just build back better. The build back, we have to build back better. We have to compete more strenuously than we have. Throughout our history, if you think about it, public investment in infrastructure has literally transformed America, our attitudes as well as our opportunities. The Transcontinental Railroad, the interstate highways, 
united two oceans and brought a totally new age of progress to the United States of America. Yeah, so the U.S. must build or rebuild its infrastructure. It's also going to be a massive jobs program, and it's framed in the context of competing with the People's Republic of China, which appears to everyone around the world to be succeeding at creating jobs, at an expansive economy, at managing COVID, at developing new technologies, creating whole new cities, like an amazing level of achievement while the U.S. is stagnating. Again, Nicole, let's play a couple more clips. This is him talking about how improving the environment will also create jobs. Creates jobs, building a modern power grid. Our grids are vulnerable to storms, hacks, catastrophic failures with tight, tragic results, as we saw in Texas and elsewhere during the winter storms. The American Jobs Plan will create jobs that lay thousands of miles of transmission lines needed to build a resilient and fully clean grid. We can do that. And now with the next clip, Nicole, you hear Biden sounding not like Bill Clinton, who introduced NAFTA, and not like Obama, who, you know, remained completely committed to all of the so-called free trade agreements, which were just corporate agreements to take U.S. jobs somewhere else. Here, he's sounding a different note and again, framing it in competition with China, but also perhaps sounding a little bit like, mm, make America great again, sounding a little bit like Donald Trump. There is simply no reason why the blades for wind turbines can't be built in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. No reason. None. No reason. So, folks, there's no reason why American, American workers can't lead the world in the production of electric vehicles and batteries. I mean, there is no reason. We have this capacity. So it, it has that little ring of poisonous nationalism. We're going to do these things again. Yes, for American jobs. Yes, for American workers. But again, with this kind of, you know, we're going to beat our adversary. And then, Nicole, Biden spent some amount of time about how he's been communicating with President Xi Jinping in China. And again, all framed within this major power competition framework. Secretary Blinken can tell you, I spent a lot of time with President Xi. Traveled over 17,000 miles with him. Spent, they tell me, over 24 hours in private discussions with him. When he called to congratulate him, we had a two-hour discussion. He's deadly earnest about becoming the most significant consequential nation in the world. He and others, autocrats, think that democracy can't compete in the 21st century with autocracies because it takes too long to get consensus. To win that competition for the future, in my view, we also need to make a once-in-a-generation investment in our families and our children. That's why I've introduced the American Families Plan tonight which addresses four of the biggest challenges facing American families and in turn America. First is access to good education. 
Esther on its face, it's almost laughable. We're going to send our children to pre-K so that we can compete with China. And I told President Xi, who's an autocrat and who wants to make the case that America can't compete in the 21st century, I want to make it clear that we can. Our three-year-olds are going to get a chance to go to pre-K. Ridiculous, but so important in terms of understanding what's really pushing the U.S. ruling class. You know, I also thought of Biden's comment after some of the recent mass shootings where he actually said it was embarrassing and he meant it was embarrassing on the national scale. And so some of the speech and some of the announcements and things that he's done to promote this American Families Plan, it has the same ring to it for me that he's embarrassed that the U.S. looks so poorly on the international stage. And again, most working people want to feel that we are getting the support that we deserve, the infrastructure that we deserve in our communities because we deserve it, not just because it's embarrassing to Biden, his administration, or the imperialists in this country. It's because we need to have a better society for ourselves. Walter, just before we start to leave out of this section, I want to mention and reinforce the idea that this competition with a communist-led government, People's Republic of China, which, you know, while it's made great strides, the per capita income for individuals is far, far, far less than it is for the United States. I mean, China's still, their main goal is to alleviate, you know, profound, deep poverty. So it's a long-term proposition. But because they're succeeding, the U.S. feels, the U.S. capitalist ruling class feels like, Uh uh-oh, people are going to get the idea that a communist-led government, as opposed to this form of governance, could actually succeed. I mean, that's what they're really talking about. If you think back to what happened and how the U.S. government finally started to take action against apartheid in America, the United States was the architect of apartheid, the architect of genocide, the architect of a form of capitalism premised on the enslavement of human beings. And then the utter disregard, even after the end of formal slavery, of the rights of millions and tens of millions of people who were formerly enslaved. All of that system was kept in place. Even in World War II, when the United States fought against the Nazi government and said it was fighting against Nazism, the racial theories and philosophies and laws of the United States were exactly the same as Nazism that there was a master race, it was the white race, and that black people had no rights that white people had to respect, and that white people had access to all kinds of institutions that were off limits, legally off limits, criminally punishable offenses if black people tried to access them. So just drive around big parts of the United States. There was motels, whites only, restaurants, whites only, schools, whites only. I mean, that was America. And that was America even in my own lifetime. And it was in 1954 when the Supreme Court unanimously decided in the Brown versus Board of Education to say that segregation in public schools was not legal. And that helped facilitate what became a mass movement in the streets. The next year, Rosa Parks and her refusal to give up her seat to a white man on a public bus in Montgomery led to the bus boycott of 13 months that, you know, started really the civil rights revolution, you know, going full steam. The reason the Supreme Court 
finally took that action is the U.S. was in competition with a communist-led government, the government of the Soviet Union, that all around the world was telling the people in Africa and Latin America, in the Middle East, in Asia, you think America is the land of freedom? No, it's the land of apartheid. It's the land of racism. It's the land of segregation. And so the U.S. government was coming under pressure from the masses of black Americans at home, but also the pressure of this international competition with the Soviet Union for the hearts and minds of people during the Cold War, that created a political shift that allowed the relationship of forces to sort of lean in the direction of the oppressed inside the United States. And as our friend Gerald Horn, who, Esther, he's on your show on the ground, he's been on this show, really important author, scholar, historian, he makes the point that the struggle for black freedom and equality could not have advanced as it did advance except for the international component. But Walter, I'll just get your opinion real quick and then Esther, have you say the final word on this piece. This is a crucial part of the global politics of the moment. Oh yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, just to add a little bit more to that history that you laid out, the world was going through incredible changes. The colonies were becoming free because of the determined struggle of the people of the colonized countries. Frequently that involved ferocious armed struggles in which thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people gave their lives. Colonialism, which was of course premised on ideological white supremacy, was coming to a close. So like, let's take Washington DC, for instance. I mean, DC was a Jim Crow apartheid city. But it was, of course, also and is the capital of the United States. And so when African countries started to win independence, they would, of course, want to send diplomats to Washington, D.C. to do diplomatic business. But it was a Jim Crow city. It was an apartheid city. And so the authorities in D.C. came up with this grotesque, I don't know what to call it, workaround, I guess, where African diplomats would be given these special badges that would indicate to people that they were exempt from the Jim Crow restrictions, tyranny imposed on Black Americans. So, I mean, if you're a leader of a newly independent African country and you're trying to decide who to make an alliance with, I mean, do you make an alliance with a country that makes you do that? Or do you make an alliance with a country, the only major world power that's a champion of the struggle against colonialism and against racism, which is not the United States, it's not France, it's not the UK, it was the Soviet Union and later on China. So yeah, I mean, I think absolutely the international situation was so important. And we're, we're actually starting to see China do something similar today. I mean, in the Alaska summit a few weeks ago between top Chinese and U.S. diplomats and national security officials, China did bring up the epidemic of police killings targeting Black Americans. And I think that that really is embarrassing to the United States on the world scale for good reason. So, Walter, I think that what you're saying is really so important. And I'm glad that you mentioned that Alaska summit because it's perfect to talk about this very important international commission of inquiry on systemic racist police violence against people of African descent in the United States. They had an important press conference last week. And one of the reasons why I think that we should emphasize their work is that they're looking at the murder and brutality by police in the United States from an independent perspective, you know, outside international organizations like the UN, where the U.S. has been able to basically squash any findings critical of human rights here in the United States. And, you know, that Alaska meeting that you mentioned, called by Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, is 
important example of how China used that international forum kind of outside of the realm of the UN to bring attention to these abuses. So this commission and report is being largely ignored here in the States, but media outside the US, like The Guardian in the UK, are picking up the findings. And the commission was made up of experts in law from Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean, you know, formerly colonized areas of the world that are really familiar with the links between, you know, colonization, exploitation, and racism. So they looked at 44 cases, all but one of which resulted in the death of a Black person. The commission found that there is more than sufficient evidence that these cases, like the murder of George Floyd and the murder of Breonna Taylor, that they amount to crimes against humanity. And it recommends that these cases be investigated as crimes against humanity by the International Criminal Court. So the commission came about after millions of people saw George Floyd, you know, tortured and choked to death by Derek Chauvin, you know, on video. And the families of Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown and Philando Castile joined 600 rights groups and petitioned the United Nations Human Rights Council to appoint a U.N. commission of inquiry to investigate this systemic racist police violence here in this country. So you also might remember that. African countries came together to endorse this petition and Mike Pompeo and members of the Trump administration, they basically squashed that. And instead, the UN agreed to look at systemic racism and violations of human rights against people of African descent all around the world. So they took the focus away from just the United States. Right. And in response the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, the National Conference of Black Lawyers, and the National Lawyers Guild launched this particular commission. And so this is Lennox Hines, Professor Emeritus of Law at Rutgers University, and he's coordinator of the International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States. All of these killings were malicious and, and intentional of unarmed black men, black women, and trans and gender non-conforming black people across the United States. The victims were shot. They were tortured with tasers inflicting 50,000 volts of electricity into the bodies of people suffering from mental illness. Some of the witnesses were suffocated. Some were choked to death. Others were killed when the police used their very vehicles as weapons, lethal weapons. In all cases, the victims were unarmed. And so the report is extremely comprehensive and we can't really get into the whole thing right now, but people can find it at their website. But it talked about how the U.S. should reverse its previous course and submit to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and adopt other international treaties recognizing, for example, the rights of the child and the right to not be tortured inside the United States. Right now, our torture conventions only apply to outside of the United States. And we know that we even violate those in terms of these black sites during the so-called war on terror. And, you know, it disputed the bad apple paradigm for abuse by police. And just one other thing I want to mention, it talked about, well, two other things, impunity 
for perpetrators because we've talked about how issues like qualified immunity basically give police here a license to kill. And it talked about what he called an alarming pattern of destruction, loss, and manipulation of evidence, cover-ups, obstruction of justice, and collusion between various arms of law enforcement in connection with these unjustified killings of unarmed persons of African descent. And I wanted to leave on that because, you know, we're still dealing with this case of Andrew Brown in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and the local sheriff and the DA, they have manipulated the situation so that the video of what happened to Mr. Brown still has not been released to the public. It may not be released for another month or more than a month. And I know I'm one person who feels that in this interim, the so-called body cam footage from at least four officers or seven officers that were on the scene could be manipulated. It could be lost. It could be destroyed. It can be edited. And I know that I'm looking at this as a situation that's ripe for manipulation and destruction of evidence, just like the police in Minneapolis officially called George Floyd's death, you know, a medical incident. And so finally, what I'll add is that it's important that the commission is putting out these facts and it's a devastating compilation of facts because right now, right-wing media like Fox, OAN, Newsmax, and even politicians on social media, what they're doing is they're demonizing Black Lives Matter. They are telling lies, basically telling more big lies and blaming Black Lives Matter for quote unquote violence at last year's uprising when in fact, you know, fascist groups like the Proud Boys instigated violence and started fires or the police themselves instigated violence. There's a really important report out today from the World Press Freedom Day talking about the extent to which police attacked journalists during the uprising. But anyway, they're kind of weaving in this denunciation of Black Lives Matter to also denounce Biden's agenda, anything that is like helping people and helping families. Yeah, it's the time-tested trick, especially directed towards working class white people, especially in smaller places, smaller cities, towns, or rural areas that their enemy is not the corporate executives who take jobs and send them overseas so that they can super exploit other workers, that their real enemy is either immigrants or especially African-American people. Time-tested trick of divide and conquer. And, you know, the other thing, Nicole, when Esther's mentioning that, and we have firsthand experience, and you personally have firsthand experience, of how it just tips reality upside down. I mean, just think back to the uprising. I mean, you were out in the streets. You were one of the organizers here in Washington, D.C. Those demonstrations were 99.9% peaceful, except there was huge amounts of tear gas and pepper spray and stinger grenades and rubber bullets directed against the people who were peacefully protesting, including yourself. You were shot seven times with rubber bullets and stinger grenades and thrown down by the police on June 1st just so that President Donald Trump could walk across Lafayette Park and have his picture taken in front of St. John's Episcopal Church with a Bible. I mean, that was the reality. The reality that more than 100 cities, people had not only arrested, they were beaten, they were hit with police cars, they were tear-gassed in more than 110 cities. Just think if this was Russia or China. Can you imagine it? All of this, the media wants to sort of forget about. And even Biden, when he's sort of embracing the mass movements, they're diminishing or not 
including the reality that the police in the United States are treating the American people as enemy combatants when they dare to struggle. So we have two issues, the need to fight together, the need to be in the streets making a change, and the need to reject the divide and conquer tactics of the demagogic politicians. Yeah, and the need to reject these twisting of narratives like, you know, Senator Tim Scott announcing on television that, you know, America is not a racist country and Biden and Kamala Harris, you know, agreeing with him. So there's a real effort to not only turn history upside down in terms of the uprising against racism last year, but just this country's history in general. Right. And you can tell when the capitalist state feels incredibly threatened because it was during this uprising against racism when people were pushing back against those narratives and white people and black people and Latino people and native people and poor people and middle income people and people of all different backgrounds and types were coming together to say, not only do black lives matter and we understand and believe that, but we are going to fight for justice. And that was when You saw on June 1st and many other days, you saw huge crowds of peaceful protesters kneeling, saying Black Lives Matter, justice for George Floyd, justice for Breonna Taylor and many other names, uh, getting tear gassed, getting sound grenades thrown at them, getting shot with rubber bullets and stinger grenades. This was this was the threat. People coming together, unifying in a multinational coalition demanding justice. Indeed. And the fact that, I mean, you're talking about they and them, but it was about you, Nicole. You were one of them and you were hit. And what was amazing to me, you were really badly injured by the police. But what was incredible is that the next day, you and tens of thousands of other people came back to the streets. People were not intimidated. They were angry. They were mobilizing. When we think about this Biden administration program, the shift, the Joe Biden, who was never a progressive, who was always aligned with the right-wing segregationists in his time in the Senate, they were his friends. He suddenly has this program that's far different than anything Obama or Trump or Clinton has offered. It's a consequence of the people's movement. And it's the people's movement that gives us hope. It's the people's movement from which change happens. And, you know, you never know where you are in the historical continuum until after the fact. You know, we never know. We keep doing the same things all the time to organize, to mobilize, to build the movement. And if you think about Rosa Parks and the huge difference she made, she's on a pedestal. We all know her name. But, you know, she would have been doing the same thing regardless of whether that particular moment triggered a mass movement. You never know, and she didn't know, that that would happen. You only know it later. And that's the whole point of the socialist program. That's the whole point of building a people's movement, is that change comes from the bottom. People have to stay steadfast and strong, not become demoralized because change doesn't happen overnight. But eventually, when it happens, it happens explosively. It's not all gradualism by any means. We saw that last summer. And we have an opportunity right now, everyone, to intensify the class-wide struggle against racism, against patriarchy, and to meet all of the social and economic needs of the working class. This can happen, and it can happen now. We don't have to wait. We can do it. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.